open the Word of God this morning to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. passage really deals with deacons, although we're not dealing specifically with deacons today, but that's the context of the passage. Uh, They're having a little trouble here with uh, uh, some hands-on ministry, and a solution is brought to them. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read uh, our portion of God's Word today? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us and open our eyes, that we might see clearly what it is that you have for us today, what you are calling us to do because of what your word says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, now we'll get to this portion, okay? So keep your hand there. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, we're going to have a little history lesson. Um, I, I was no good at math, so I was good at history, okay? I can remember those obscure little dates. I, I can't remember. Oh, I can remember how to multiply, but as soon as you start putting... See, my problem comes when you start putting letters in math. Now, I never understood that, and, and everything goes downhill. As soon as you add a letter to numbers, I'm, I'm down, Okay? There have been ages in in history, throughout history, and and we only go back a couple hundred years, six or seven hundred years. We have the Dark Ages. We have the Middle Ages. At the end of the Middle Ages, we have a time which was called, uh, which we refer to as now the Modern Age or Modernity, and that was the Renaissance and Enlightenment, and people moved pretty much from a view uh, of God formed the world and everything was about that to uh, much more of a a man-centered reality. Yes, there was God, but we're much more interested in science and and what man has to say. And you can see the change in art. You can see the change in literature. You can see all these things going on. Uh, And that runs off really until, uh, I I can't even put a date on it, to what is known as postmodern, postmodernity. Okay? 
Now, these are words that you may have, or phrases you may have heard me say before, or you have read about them. And in the postmodern era, the, the thought patterns are simply different. People think differently, and this is one way to identify uh, how uh, how this is played out in society. And, and you've heard me say this before. In, in, in a postmodern thought, there's no absolute truth, and that's the only absolute truth, okay, is that you cannot say to me, this is absolutely true, because I have to feel it. I have to sense it. It has to be, it's, it's, frankly, it's left up to me to determine if it's true or not, okay? Don't confuse me with objective facts, because it must be subjective truth for me to really agree with it. It must be my truth. Knowledge is wholly subjectable. Wholly subjective. It is a result of our culture. It's a result of language. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to boil down thousands of pages of explanation to this, to just a few moments, to give you the great uh, overview. And, and what it comes to is that I'm the arbiter of truth. Okay, The way I feel about it, the way I perceive it, that is truth. No longer is it objective. No longer can we say, you know, the old joke was, well, um, you know, two and two is four, but the new math, two and two might be five. Okay, Well, I never got the old math, obviously, so I have trouble with new math. Um, but we should not be surprised to find that in this type of mindset that there are, there are often held mutually contradicting ideas Okay, now let me give you an example of this. I came across a young man who, who said to me very clearly, oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm really good with Reformed theology. I think, I think that's, that's scriptural and, and, and it's great. And I went, oh, great, that's, you know, that's biblical theology and Reformed theology, biblical theology, it's all good Christianity. And then in our discussion, he also revealed that he was, he was a strong believer in reincarnation as well. And, and I, you know, he, he kind of said that just, just on this side. And I said, reincarnation, really? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, how do, you, how do you equate that? How do you keep reincarnation and reformed theology together? You say you hold to both. He said, yes, I do. Okay, that, those are mutually exclusive. That's like going out and saying, um, it's day at midnight. No, it's, it's dark. No, no, it's light. Can it be light and dark at the same time? Can you believe in reformed theology and the sovereignty of God and, and the things of Christ and also say, but... You know, when I die, I'm coming back. Hopefully, I'm coming back not as a worm or a cow or something. I'm coming back as, as somebody who's richer or better, better looking, something like that. Mutually exclusive. So it's not out of the ordinary to hold mutually exclusive views. Okay, often the postmodern mindset holds views which are in contradiction to their own conclusions, even. Let me give you a quote from Aleth Anderson, who's a pastor up in Minnesota, I believe. We have a generation that is less interested in cerebral arguments, linear thinking, theological systems, and more interested in encountering the supernatural. Consequently, churchgoers operate with a different view of spirituality. The old view taught that if you have the right teaching, you will experience God. The new view says that if you think you have experienced God, you assume it is the right teaching. Okay? No longer is it about anything else than what I think. You know, this is the song, it's all about me. It's all about me. All right, well, in my discussions with people, I, uh, I hear often that with non-believers, that they want to say, well, if this, if this God stuff is true, if this religion stuff is true, then you would be able to give me what I'm going to term today as tangible evidence that it is true. 
Within our society, tangible evidence means different things to different people. Okay, different things to different people. To some, we have seen in, in, in postmodern view, tangible evidence is whatever I deem it to be. Therefore, it must be true if I deem it to be. Others will look at tangible evidence and say, no, that is not real because I don't believe it. So it makes it false. Now, I get two examples for you. Uh, one was on the plane. I was coming home from, from these three days of, of uh, uh, meeting with, with another church and, and, and their problems and issues, and I'm on the plane. And, and there were two discussions that, that I, I was sitting behind the person, you know, and, and the uh, long flights. So you just sit there and you listen into everybody else's conversation, okay, because the person next to me is zonked out. So there are two different flights, two different girls, both about 24, and I'm not picking on 24-year-old girls. This was just what it was. And, and they both had the answers to the world problems. And I was just so impressed with, with their ideas. And, and, and the one, man, she knew what the problems were economically, ecologically, politically, uh, spiritually. And, and she said, you know, she had to plan. And she is sitting next to two guys who are both over 65 and they're truck drivers. And, you know, they just think that they're having this conversation with this nice, sweet 24-year-old girl. And she is telling them how the world should be. Okay. And, and I listened to her conversation, and I thought, I thought I was not like that at 24, was I? And I thought, well, yeah, I probably was. But but it was just such a shock that her view of the world was so different. Her view of what was right, her view of what should happen, was simply so foreign to me. And then it was reconfirmed by another girl who I assume was about that age, and she was giving us a dissertation on the proper way to raise children. I <laughs> Okay, and and she was she was on her way to move in with her fiance, and she already had a child, and and I'm not getting on her, but I'm just saying, you know, and maybe that's, you know, at, at, you know, you get you get kids, and then you figure out, oh, after 20 years, well, maybe I should have done this, maybe that was the right thing to do. Okay, uh, not when your child is two, you're not, you shouldn't be got giving the gospel on how to raise children. Of course. I may have given the gospel when my kids were two. I don't know. But it was so foreign, the mindset of what they, how they went about it. Let me illustrate a little bit more. I was, I was in this group of people. And again, I'm, I'm just listening. You have to be careful when I'm around. I might listen in on your conversation, all right? And, and, there, and, and this couple is talking. And this, this couple, and it was obvious that they were a couple. And they were in a disagreement over marriage. And you could tell from the conversation, she was a proponent of marriage, and he was an opponent of marriage. Um, and he, he was giving, you know, waxing eloquent about the, uh, the pitfalls of marriage and the, uh, the weaknesses, and it's simply a societal um, thing that has been placed upon us, and it is there. You, you know, you as a woman should understand that marriage is only designed really to subjugate, subjugate you and, you know, to keep you where you should be. And, and he went on, and, and, and you could tell that she was not all that pleased with what he was saying. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't interject myself. I was just 
I was enraptured by his wisdom um, on, on marriage. And he was saying, and, and you know, 50% of the marriages fail, and that should be clear evidence that we should, we, we should not marry. And he went on and on about this, and, and you know, this is a 30-minute conversation. I'm only giving you the highlights. No, no understanding that, that marriage is a reflection of, of relationship of Christ and the church. No understanding that it has been created from, from the beginning of creation. No, no, Mention of all the benefits in society that marriage has has uh, bestowed upon us and given us in all of these things. He discounted any reference or didn't even mention any of these things concerning marriage. No positive influence. You know, it was kind of like, uh, don't bother me with the facts. This is my view of it, so it must be true. He's, yes, he, he did say that his parents' marriage had, had broken up and, you know, he must, he was obviously a child of divorce. He had those issues that, that he was struggling with. Discussion went on for about 30 minutes. And, and suffice to say that when the couple got up and left, they were going back to their lives, which I must assume from the discussion was cohabitation. And she was not happy with the conversation, but yet she was going to go back knowing his view of marriage. And you could tell from her view, she was interested in getting married. He was not. Okay. Now, the man saw no tangible evidence of the benefit of marriage. Now, he didn't turn and ask me. He didn't turn and say, Mr., is there any tangible evidence that marriage has benefited your life? Well, yeah. (laughs) How many of you would say who are married that there is tangible evidence that your marriage has benefited you in a great fashion. Is there anybody who's not married that doesn't put their hand like that? I'm, I'm concerned here, okay? okay. Now, now, there might be. Not everybody's marriage is, is great, okay? So there can struggle, but you have to understand that, that when we look at the, at the biblical mandate, when we look at how we are to interact with one another, how we are to treat one another, you know, it's very clear from Ephesians 5, Men, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. All that he was, he gave up for her. Okay? Ladies, if we do that, life is easy for you. I mean, who? what, what woman would not want to follow a man who willingly gives up all that he is in the same sense that Christ did? What woman would not willingly love that man? So really, the hard part is on men. Okay? And we do it. I know some of you do it fantastically. Okay. Let's go back to the original question. Is there tangible evidence that the God revealed to us in Scripture is the true God? Now, we often talk about grace. It's free. It's undeserved. It's bestowed upon us in these fabulous quantities. We can never lose our salvation. Now, how do we know this? Is it because I feel it? Uh, It makes us no different than any of the postmodern believers. How do we differentiate that feeling from too much breakfast? Okay, oh yes, I'm satisfied. I must be in the Lord's will. He must love me. Uh, no, that was because you had eggs and bacon and toast and juice and coffee. Huh? Now, how is this different from a warm fuzzy that comes with a puppy, you know, or comes with something like that that makes us feel so good? How do you know God loves you? Because I, I just feel so good about it. 
How is it that we know that these things are actually true? Now, for those of us in this room who are believers, who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Okay, And part of his ministry to us is to give assurance, is to affirm in us that Christ has done this for us, that he has called us by name, given us a new heart. So we fully don't understand why people don't understand this or why they would even question because it is so real in our lives. We're already believers. The Bible tells me so. That's enough, right? The Bible tells me so. Uh, Not everybody out there adheres to that. Not everybody else thinks that's sufficient evidence. That's not tangible. It's not tangible. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We know these things are true. And how will a world who can't even be convinced that marriage has value can be convinced that God is true? How can a world who, and this was last week, I think, uh, I read an article, you know, there was uh, Amazon.com took off a, a particular book or a selection of books that really were geared towards helping pedophiles be better pedophiles, okay? Basically, that's what the books were. And I read an article where they were criticizing Amazon, saying, Amazon, by taking those books off of your sales list, you are imposing your morality on society. Amazon, you can impose morality like that on our society anytime. Okay, now, now how can we take this wonderful grace and go out and demonstrate it to a world that believes those things? Hmm. How is it that we can communicate this overarching truth in this world? And that truth is that God is real. He has shown himself in his son, Jesus the Christ, who gave his life to atone for our sins. How can we take that message to a world that doesn't believe that? I have answers today, okay? This is not rhetorical questions today. I've got answers for us today. You know how they can be convinced of this truth? You want to know how that portion of the population that thinks anything they don't like or anything that doesn't fit into their personal worldview can be reached for the gospel of Christ? Are you ready to hear this? I want to get you at the edge of your seat, okay? I want you to be ready for this. We're going to do it in the same fashion that it's always been done, okay? Now, is that the definition of idiocy? Okay, we're going to do it in the same way and, and expect a different response. The problem is we haven't been doing it in the same way. When I say we, I mean the church as a whole, the church as a whole, not just our little portion of it here. Historically, when the word has gone forth and it has impacted the world, it has been accompanied by demonstrations of that word. Grace goes forth in the preaching of the word. How is it made real? As it is tangibly demonstrated. Word and deed. That's why we talk about word and deed. Okay? Going out with the word is good. It will change lives. It is the power of God unto salvation. But with a world that really doesn't believe any of this, doesn't give this any, it doesn't give us the time of day on some of this stuff. Somebody said to me, Randy, don't invite me to church. Invite me to serve. Like, what? <laughs> they had to tell me about it a little bit more. Okay? Don't invite me to church. Invite me to serve. So what do you mean by that? If you really believe that stuff that you get up and preach, then invite me out where you are demonstrating it, 
where you are living it out, and then I can see this gospel that you talked about in real life. If you believe it so much, go out and do it, and I'll come alongside you, and then I'll see it. Oh, no. He asked me to do something. It wasn't enough. Just take my word for it. This gospel is true. He said, now go and live it, and I'll hear it, and I'll see it. I'll hear it, and I'll see it. Let me give you an historic example of this. Now, I've used uh, a book before by Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is a sociologist, okay? And he writes about the rise of Christianity. And he looks at the rise of Christianity not from a theological position. He doesn't incorporate the power of the Spirit. He, He kind of puts that aside. He says, what are the sociological reasons the church in the first couple centuries exploded in numbers? Why is that? So he went back and looked at some things, and and two of the things, and and it's a long book, but two of the things that he writes about are two epidemics that happened in the Roman Empire in 165 A.D. and 260. And he centers on what happened in the individual lives, as he has found from the historic documents, in, in villages, in towns, in the city of Rome, in all these things, what happened during this period of time. I mean, the epidemics were so bad that at one point... Uh, historians say there were 5,000 bodies being carted out of Rome each day as people would die, almost like the Black Death that swept through Europe, okay? But this is in one first, the uh, second and third centuries. No explanation, no medical explanation of what went on. That They just weren't capable of, of grasping what was happening. Entire cities, entire villages were decimated by this epidemic. But some of those villages that survived... Stark went and did research, and he found out why people in those villages survived. It's because Christians stayed. Christians did not flee the epidemic, but stayed in their hometown. They went to their neighbor's house. If they were sick, they cared for them. They went to the stranger's house. If they were sick, they cared for them. If a Christian came and cared for you in the midst of an epidemic, your likelihood of survival was 80% as he has found in these, these records. If nobody came for you and cared for you, your, your mortality rate was 100%. Okay? The pagans, let me read to you some, some uh, citations. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way the Christians behaved. At the first onset of disease, they pushed the sufferers away, fled from their friends and families, throwing them into the roads even before they were dead, hoping to escape the disease themselves. The Christians stayed. They cared for the sick at the risk of their own lives. Compassion and love were hallmarks of early believers, and the church flourished in these areas. Okay, Where people survived, it was because the Christians demonstrated what it was they believed. And the church exploded in those areas. It exploded. See, what Christ says, he says, feed the hungry, visit those in prison, Clothe those who are naked. And in the midst of that, what are you doing? Oh, he says, you're feeding me. You're clothing me. You're visiting me. He said, that's what believers do. They live out what it is they believe. For the first 400 years in the Roman Empire, the church exploded because they did these things. They demonstrated tangible grace. Their hearts had been changed by the love of Christ. And they said, how do I live this out? I live it out with my neighbor. So they went and they cared for their neighbor. And what happened? Their neighbor believed. 
because they saw it and they heard it. And then their neighbor went to their neighbor. And what did they do? They lived it out. And what happened? Their neighbor believed. The church just went. How can this little bitty Jewish cult who started with one guy and then there were 12 guys. And and yes, we're not we're not incorporating the Holy Spirit here in all this is simply sociological things. How is it that this cult went from this little town to impacting most of the known world in 300 years? Word and deed. Preach the word of Christ. Demonstrate the things of Christ. Just like that. Fast forward to today. Why is the population growing faster than the church population? Why is the church spending more dollars than ever and getting fewer and fewer results? Why is there a view in the world that says there's no absolute truth, that I am alone the arbiter of what is true? Because the church, not, not, I mean, we're here, but I'm talking about the church in general. We have just not lived it out enough. We have not been demonstrators of this tangible grace. We are great on knowing that we are saved. We are great on knowing that Christ has changed me. And, and I am great with that. Okay? Here's what the Lord has done. Ask me about it and I'll tell you. The Lord wants to see it. They want a tangible demonstration of the grace that we say is in our lives. Acts chapter 6. Now what we have here is the daily distribution of food. And the Hellenistic Jews, those are the Greek Jews, they've come from all over Palestine, and they're located here now in Jerusalem. They're saying, you know what? The Hebrew widows, who were raised in Jerusalem for the most part, and everybody knows them, they're getting more food and a better distribution than the Greek widows are. And that's a concern. They were grumbling, 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 okay? They didn't actually approach the apostles straight out. They just kind of, you know, sat back and said, you know, we're getting the dregs of the distribution over here. Uh, Don't, you know, so they grumbled until finally the apostles heard it and they began to act upon it. And they said, you know what, our ministry is word. Whose ministry is deed? Let's get it, because it's got to go hand in hand. If we're going to impact the lives of these people, we have to impact all of their lives. All of their lives. So there seemed to be a bias in how this tangibleness of grace was being distributed out. See, we, we often have to be reminded that the souls we love and want to share Christ with are often abused often hungry, often need shoes, blankets, all of those things. And those are tangible demonstrations of the grace that we so dearly believe in and have been affected by ourselves. What was the result of all of this? Go down to verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading... And the number number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Why? Word and deed together. They continued to teach the word. They tangibly demonstrated the things of grace and cared for people. And here's, here's the kicker that's thrown in there. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. These are the people who were the hardcore Jewish Pharisees, the believers. And their lives are being changed. Why? Because not that they see 
the seven laws or 700 laws that you have to obey, they were seeing this talk and this teaching of graciousness, and then they looked at the lives of those who taught it, and they saw it lived out. My goodness, how can you argue with that? This is what I believe. Let me show you what I believe. There it was. The word of God grew. Today our churches should be marked with the same kind of conviction. The tangible application of the grace that has changed our lives. It is essential for the gospel to go forward. Essential. Are you ready for your homework? Okay. I gave you answers. Now I'm going to give you homework. I want to see this demonstrated in your lives. I don't ask you to do anything that I haven't already tried. Okay. So here it is. You have two weeks. And this is what I want you to do. And then you have to email me about how it went. Okay? You can email the church. Tino will send it off to me. Or if you have my email address, send it to me. When you go to restaurants, when you go to the dry cleaner, when you go to the grocery store and see the clerk, when you interact with people in general, I want you to watch them. If they look like the stresses in life are pressing upon them, they look a little downcast, they look like they're having trouble, I want you to ask them this question. How can I pray for the Lord to bless you today? How can I pray for the Lord to bless you today? Simple, straightforward. Don't, don't, don't give them any great explanation. Straight with a question. How can I pray for the Lord to bless you today? You might get an answer like one that I got. I don't believe in that. And the waiter turned and walked off. You could tell he was upset. Or you might get a gush of life. I'm so glad that somebody has asked me. I'm having a, the worst day of my life. Okay? Be ready. For, for Those are the opposite ends of the spectrum. Anything in between. How can I pray for the Lord to bless you today? Send me your results. I want to hear about how this goes. Okay? Now, this is not my idea. People, uh, plenty of other people are doing this. In fact, one guy was saying um, at his church that, that we decided to target all the Whatever the people at Starbucks are that make coffee. Okay? Um, baristas. Is that what you said? Baristas. And, and they targeted every Starbucks in town, and there were 15 Starbucks. So that church went out and did this to every barista. And, and the, the pastor who was, who was uh, I'm reading what he's writing, he said, So I went to one that I normally don't go to. And I got to the, the counter, and, and I, you know, I bought my coffee, and I asked the, the barista, what, How can I pray for the Lord to bless you today? And she looked at me and said, are you one of those blessing people? (laughs) Yes, okay. You want to talk about beginning to impact a community, to beginning to trust that, okay, Lord, you call us to make a difference. I'll ask a simple question. If I get shut down, what did I lose? I didn't lose anything. But you might get somebody who looks at you and says, my life is coming apart. Would you pray for this and this and this? And if you get that, like example, at a restaurant, and the waitress comes up to you and tells you that after you have asked, you better go back to that same restaurant later and ask. Say, I've, I've prayed. How has it been? Okay. If it's one you go to on a regular basis, maybe you see that person, your dry cleaner, uh, whatever it is, be ready for that. Okay. If we're going to tangibly demonstrate grace, I want to start in something easy. Ask a question. Let's pray.
Lord, what great examples you have given us. Great examples of how the church of Jesus Christ made inroads. Yes, it was the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was the Holy Spirit empowering those early believers to demonstrate the things you had done in their hearts. Lord, I know in our homework, there are some whose personalities just don't lend themselves to this. They're not the kind who will look somebody in the eye, and a stranger, and say, how can I ask the Lord to bless you this week? But Lord, I, I would ask that you would give them confidence. Prompt them at the right time that when that person walks up, it will be so evident to their eyes that, that they have to ask, that they have to show concern. And what greater place to take that person than to the throne of grace? Lord, we want to be obedient in these things, and and we want to start with small steps, but we want to start with something that is very tangible. So, Lord, we pray that in the coming two weeks, as we seek how we might pray for those that, that we might hardly know or not know at all, that you would use us to demonstrate what you have placed in our hearts, to demonstrate to those around us this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lives have been changed. How can you use us as the instrument, the vehicle, the demonstrator of grace? Empower us, especially these next two weeks, to do this, Lord, that we might see you at work, see you demonstrate your grace through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation of our communion.